The term cookie, as in web cookie, began its life as magic cookie, a bit of jokey jargon used by Unix developers to refer to a packet of data shared between machines or programs, often to check whether one had the permissions required to access the other, or to access some hidden compartment of that other machine or program. This concept was applied to the internet in the early days of the web, when a developer working at Netscape, the maker of one of the earliest, most popular graphical web browsers, was tasked with figuring out how to enable e-commerce without requiring the host of the site doing the selling to maintain a stable of temporary partial sales states. Basically, they didn't want to use up tons of space and processing power on their own computers for gobs of not-yet-complete purchases, storing information about what's in the shopping cart, and things of that nature. So they asked for another way of accomplishing the same thing that wasn't so resource-intensive for the owner of such sites. That developer, an employee named Lou Montuli, thought it might be possible to use this magic cookie concept for the web as well and he wrote the first specification for accomplishing this saving of states on the user's machine in late 1994. As a result of this innovation, which he patented in 1998, in web parlance today, a cookie is a tiny bit of data stored on one computer that allows it to tell another computer something about its state. On a practical level, this typically means a user visits a website, that website downloads, via the browser, a small file or code snippet onto that user's computer, or checks the state of an existing bit of data of the same kind. And from that point forward, that code, that cookie, serves as an identifier for the user's computer when they visit that site and often other sites as well. When this standard first rolled out to the public in 1994, and then more broadly across more browsers in 1995, it wasn't something that the average person had any reason to know about, and the website owners and browser makers were not publicizing it broadly. So users often benefited from the identifiers without knowing precisely how this online wizardry that was enabled was accomplished. In early 1996, though, the Financial Times published a popular piece about cookies, and that sparked a wave of concern over the potential privacy implications of this technology, which resulted in U.S. Federal Trade Commission hearings that year and into the next. In 1997, the programmers behind the original cookie specification were wrestling with the implications of third-party cookies. Basically, cookie code that was created by whomever, delivered by whomever, to users who did not know these cookies were there. And these were being downloaded onto the user's machines, potentially, via a specification that didn't even tell the users that this download was happening. These programmers decided that third-party cookies were too dangerous to be allowed in mainstream browsers, but the two biggest browsers at the time, Netscape and Internet Explorer, 
were already allowing these third-party cookies to be used, and they were popular with most facets of the advertising world. So they opted not to use the new, more protective cookie standard that had been developed and which would have limited those third-party options. New cookie standards have been implemented in the years since, but third-party cookies have remained in use, many with far better security standards than those that came before. But the privacy focus in those original cookies are long gone, and most modern browsers, with few exceptions, allow pretty much any cookie to be used, as long as they formally declare how the information they collect will be utilized by the company that is installing them on visitors' machines. Cookies today are often used to track users across the whole of the web, across apps that they use, and even across other services like email. They are fairly ubiquitous and difficult to avoid, the argument for why cookies are good and should be allowed to be this pervasive mostly comes back to the fact that they do tend to make browsing the web and using apps and other services more convenient because they save our passwords for us. They auto-fill fields. They allow us to remain logged in to the sites that we visit, and they help us maintain our settings on sites that we've visited before. They also allow advertising services to show us ads that are more likely to be relevant to our needs and wants, and they enable some of the basic functionality of the web, maintaining states and adjusting security settings so that they're appropriate to our identities, memberships, and so on. The downside of cookies is that they do tend to be a gaping security hole, and they arguably infringe upon the privacy of everyone who has them on their devices, because they track where we go, the information that we enter into forms, what we upload and download, messages we send, how long we use different apps, and pretty much anything else that's potentially trackable, loggable, and predictable about us. Cookies can also mess up, failing to perform proper authentication procedures, identifying us incorrectly, in some cases amplifying existing biases and prejudices that exist within some systems, and they can open us up to abuse and manipulation and addictive so-called dark patterns from advertisers and other entities that want to sell us things or sell us on certain perspectives or ideas. Cookies, in essence, give our behaviors on the internet a trackable fingerprint, and that can be useful in that it can make accessing certain things and identifying ourselves a lot simpler and more streamlined. But it also makes us more vulnerable to some types of manipulation and infringement, hence the initial pushback against the concept in 1996, and the many subsequent waves of mistrust and attempted regulation of this technology in the years since. Today, I'd like to talk about an impending showdown between some tech world titans and how this conflict orients around data, privacy, and identity management on the internet. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Economist, 
and it's entitled, Apple's Privacy Policy Kicks Facebook Where It Hurts. This piece digs into an ongoing, but recently, escalated conflict between Apple and Facebook that centers on a new Apple policy called App Tracking Transparency, or ATT. At the core of ATT is a collection of changes to how a concept called Apple ID for Advertisers, or IDFA, works. IDFA is a random identification code given to every Apple device, and that code is important because it's what allows advertisers to track iPhone and other Apple device users across apps, including browsers. The benefit of this type of tracking is that it allows entities like Facebook to see whether an ad displayed on Instagram influenced your buying decisions later. Maybe you saw an Instagram ad and then bought the thing that you saw in that ad later on your Chrome browser. It would be nearly impossible to make that connection lacking this identifier, this IDFA that says the person using this phone did this thing, then they did this other thing. Cause and effect could not be easily determined, and thus Facebook, or whomever placed that ad, would not be able to collect metrics to show that their ads work, and thus they would not be able to charge as much for their ads, or maybe sell them in the first place. Apple has typically allowed iPhone and other device users to opt out of this tracking mechanism. And some data shows that about 20% of iPhone users do exactly that, which is not ideal for advertisers, who were previously able to glean something close to 100% of this information from the unique device identifiers, or UDIDs, that were the precursor of the more user-centric IDFAs. But 80% of tracking is better than 0%, and making ad tracking an opt-out option meant most people would never turn it off, so that new status quo was fine. But an upcoming policy change, originally meant to be implemented in 2020, but pushed back to the spring of 2021, will restrict access to IDFA and require websites and apps to get permission from users before they are able to collect and utilize this data. That ATT policy, then, means that once implemented, users will be asked if a given app, like Facebook or Instagram or Chrome, is allowed to track them and to use this information however they like. And a user can then respond to this prompt with either a yes or a no. Sharing this data will be opt-in instead of opt-out, which will almost certainly dramatically decrease the number of people sharing this type of data with these entities. Because all else being equal, it's a pretty tough sell to get people to turn on a function that benefits companies like Facebook a lot, but which the owner of that device benefits from only a little, if at all. The implications of this change for companies that rely on this data for their revenue cannot be overstated. Yes, some people will continue to allow it, but it probably won't be the majority of people and certainly not the 80% that it is today. And yes, Apple is not the only player in this space. Google's Android operating system is far more prevalent than Apple's iOS worldwide. But the spendiest consumers, on average, use Apple products. And the iOS app ecosystem, in particular, is worth far more economically than Android's numerically larger app ecosystem. 
So Android is bigger in terms of users, but Apple is bigger in terms of the money that they make from the users that they have. So this move, while seemingly insignificant to those of us out in smartphone user land, is very significant to folks working in advertising-supported app, service, or product land. For the financial period ending in December of 2020, Facebook earned an income of just over $29 billion on revenue of about $86 billion. About 45% of that revenue came from the United States and Canada, and the other 55% came from the rest of the world combined. That revenue figure represents an increase of 21.6% over 2019's numbers, which is less of an increase than they saw in 2019 over 2018. The company's revenue shot up by 26.6% that year, but it's still being seen as a pretty good number, especially considering all the uncertainties the world has faced in 2020. That said, 98% of Facebook's total revenue comes from advertisements. 2% comes from all their other endeavors, like their virtual reality products and portal devices, combined. If you think about this ATT thing from Facebook's perspective then, this change, especially if it proves to be a harbinger of other future moves within the tech space, as these types of stances sometimes are, and I'll get into that a bit more in a moment, from their perspective this looks not quite cataclysmic, but not far from that either. This move also comes in the wake of other similar efforts by Apple, like the introduction of app privacy labels which are meant to serve as something like nutrition labels for apps, displaying what kinds of information each app collects and how that information will be used before the user downloads said app. Efforts that seem to be part of a larger brand reorientation meant to reposition Apple as the privacy-centric tech company, which makes a lot of sense when you consider that many of their competitors are heavily reliant on advertising revenue, while Apple is not. Apple makes some money from services and is actively trying to diversify further into that and other fields more each year. But they still make the majority of their revenue from hardware, which in some ways makes them uniquely capable, among the United States' biggest tech companies at least, of taking this type of stance. To counter this move, and others like it, Facebook has launched offensives against Apple, both in the press and more surreptitiously behind the scenes. They've bought full-page newspaper ads in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, decrying Apple as a hypocrite and painting their privacy-related activities as being anti-free and open internet. They've also, on the less overt side of things, supported lawsuits and PR campaigns fronted by others against Apple, including recent popular complaints brought against the company by Basecamp regarding Apple's inconsistent iOS App Store payment policies, and by Epic, a company that makes popular games like Fortnite and gaming frameworks like Unreal, which criticized Apple for their seeming favoritism of their own internally produced apps at the expense of competitors. And in that case, Apple seemed to be giving its Apple Arcade game service privileges that other companies like Epic, but also Microsoft, were not granted, which they and some regulators are calling a monopolistic tactic. 
I mentioned that there may be similar moves elsewhere, too, beyond Apple, and that was a reference to Google's recently announced intention to figure out an alternative to Apple's policy that would grant more power to users than they currently have, but which doesn't completely hamstring advertisers the way Apple's ATT policy shift could. Now, worth mentioning here is that much like Facebook, Google is heavily dependent on ad revenue to stay in the black. Google is more diversified in their earnings than Facebook, but they still rely on ads for more than 70% of the $162 billion or so that they made in 2019. And though Google will likely lose some of its share of the digital ad market in 2020, mostly to relative newcomers in the advertising space like Amazon, they are still reliant on that space for the foreseeable future. Thus, it is likely that whatever choice they make about how Android will deal with the privacy pivot from their main mobile operating system competitor, it will almost certainly be a watered-down version of what Apple is doing, perhaps even to the point where it's mostly just a collection of superficial changes rather than anything truly substantial and significant. That said, this sort of privacy shift is not only happening in the private sector, Politicians are incentivizing ad companies to think about a tracking-free future in very concrete ways. Actual lawmaking in that direction has been on the horizon, supposedly, for years, but there's a surge of interest in this sort of thing, worldwide right now. And in the United States in particular, there are flurries of national and state-scale bills being introduced, any of which could seriously hobble any company that, a few years from now, is still heavily dependent on the tracking that enables ultra-specific advertising in our internet-connected devices. Data privacy bills in Minnesota, New York, North Dakota, Oklahoma, and Washington in particular seem likely to complicate things for Facebook, Google, and their targeted ad-slinging peers. But this type of legislation has already been passed in California, and that legislation was expanded further in December of 2020, with the passing of the California Privacy Rights Act. Of course, these moves in the U.S. in some way pale in comparison to what's already been done in the European Union, where they've already implemented the General Data Protection Regulation and have several add-on and similar laws in the pipeline. Other countries around the world are eyeballing or already debating these ideas as well. So although this won't be an all-at-once thing, the writing does seem to be on the wall that some kind of privacy-focused change is in the air, and companies that don't get on board will likely be less competitive on the market, but will also potentially face untold legal complexities, bans and fines, and almost certainly the eventual need to catch up with their competitors who made these sorts of changes sooner, and who thus gained a head start both practically and in their brand recalibration to incorporate this collection of concepts. Now that said, there is a chance that the entities that are clinging to the status quo of the targeted ad world, which I should probably clarify, doesn't mean advertising as a whole, it means advertising that utilizes data taken from your device and from your online activities to feed you ads that are more likely to be relevant to you, according to these formulas. Entities that cling to that business model may be able to hold out 
and reinforce their position on the back of another new or new-seeming technology, which could provide them with the veneer or reality of increased privacy while still allowing them to perform their business as usual, or so close to the usual that the difference doesn't really matter to their bottom line. Google, for instance, has been promoting a cookie alternative called Federated Learning of Cohorts, or Flock, which essentially collects data about users like cookies do. But then rather than turning that data over to advertisers, it instead feeds it into an AI of sorts, and that artificial intelligence spits out a general audience assessment, which tells advertisers something about the person in question and their behavior, but in a way that reduces the chance that any private information will reach those third parties. This is a technology that's already in use for other purposes, like the predictive text function on some smartphone keyboards, and in Facebook's self-improving apps and service software. But there's been pushback on this concept as well because it doesn't alleviate the manipulative aspects of targeted advertising, and because there's still apparently the possibility of data leakage, despite the effort to keep that information separate and walled off, in its specifics at least, from outside entities. There are alternatives in the works, and it's likely that Google, Facebook, and other such companies won't make business model-breaking changes without putting up a fight and trying out all possible alternatives, some of which might even serve their purpose. Though likely, even such theoretical alternatives would have trade-offs that would then need to be debated and would possibly, eventually, end up in the same public perception jail as today's cookies. We will see how the specifics play out on this, but whatever tech and whichever laws end up determining the specifics, the wind does seem to be blowing in a fairly clear and more user-focused direction at the moment. The book that I'd like to recommend today is entitled This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyberweapons Arm Race by Nicole Perlroth. This book is quite new and very fascinating, especially in the wake of the flurry of massive cyber attacks that have happened recently, both the ransomware-style cyber attacks that have held government entities and schools and hospitals hostage but also the cyber attacks that have utilized aspects of the cyber world infrastructure to infiltrate government entities and businesses and so on. Entities that we thought were fairly secure, at least compared to the majority of online entities out there, but which turned out not to be as secure because of the necessity to use these outside vendors and other sorts of service providers. The book is written by an absolute expert on this field, a journalist who has written about such things for a very long time, and who has a deep well of connections and first-hand accounts of things that have happened along the way. And fundamentally, this book provides an understanding of the state of play in the cyber warfare world currently, as of 2021, and what we can expect in the future. And I'll tell you right now, things look pretty dire 
There's some reason for optimism as people become more aware of these sorts of threats, but they're still not being taken super seriously by many of the world's governments right now, except for those who have been very aggressive and who have been taking the offensive when it comes to such attacks so far. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you'd like to understand the world of cybersecurity and cyber warfare, consider picking up a copy of This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends by Nicole Perlroth. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can find my weekdaily news-focused newsletter at yesterdaysnewsletter.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on most of those and just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.